Let's go to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, verse uh, 35 and 36 today. Yes, we're going to do two verses at once. And you won't have the same two verses for the next month. All right? We might be able to do two verses in one sermon. That's amazing. 35 and 36. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Or tribulation? Or distress? Or persecution? Or famine? Or nakedness? Or peril? Or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. I want to help you with a perspective today. We've been talking about the love of God all the way through this chapter, right? My desire is to show you how secure you are in that love. And I think God's word is rather clear on that point. I think even this verse is rather clear on that point. When it starts that phrase, and that question, and it stands open for you to answer. Who will separate you from the love of Christ? The world has an entirely different perspective on the way God loves. And I wonder which one we have bought. Which one we believe. We say, well, of course I believe what Scripture says. Yes, we do. And sometimes do we not think that it's hard to, to match it up with the events of our day and age? It's, it's hard to say, oh, I'm securing God's love, and read the newspaper, see the news in the evening. There's, there's a challenge there, isn't there? I'm going to uh, help you from this passage with some thoughts here this morning. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? That's our question. And Heavenly Father, it's a big question. But you had it recorded in Scripture for us to contemplate and for us to find the answer for. And as we've been studying this passage, we're very confident what the answer is. I just pray, Lord, that uh, you also help us see it and know it and live in light of it. We need a good view of your love. And your word has made that very abundantly clear to us. You have displayed that not only in the crucifixion of our Savior, which nothing goes beyond that display, but the very fact that you continually display your love for us over and over and over and over again. I pray that our hearts are warmed in your presence today, warmed with your love and with the security we have in it. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. The question we often hear, and you've heard it, I know you have, it's been in the news often at the uh, tail end of a tragedy, and how many do we average now? Tragedies that come through our world. 
There's all kinds of forms of that too. The question is generally, where was God? Right? It's brought up often. Where was God? Uh, after all, if, if God loves us, why did this happen? The world really does think in that question, it poses something we cannot answer. Have you ever struggled with an answer to it? In the midst of something like that? Uh, and they, they think that we cannot answer that question. They have some sort of understanding. I think that God is something like a doting father who's careful not to let his child so much as skin as me. And yet, they don't know where he went. Because somebody was hurt, or worse than that. I think at times the church tends to believe God that way too. They're not afraid... I'm speaking of the world's perspective. They're not afraid to call into question the things that we actually believe about him. They're not afraid to. Uh, if he's omnipotent, and we believe that, right? They say, then why didn't he stop it? If we say that he's omniscient, they would ask, well, if he knew it was coming, couldn't he have done something? If we say that he was omnipresent, you know, everywhere, why wasn't he there? Is a question. When we needed him the most. If he is loving, then why does he allow this to happen? You see, they question the very thing that we believe about our God, right? His omnipotence, his omniscience, his omnipresence, and his love. Four basic yet powerful statements about the character of our God. And they question them when tragedies come along. Now, I could ask you this morning, how would you answer that? <laughs> it's not easy, is it? Especially when they confront you and you know there's hurt in their voice. Um, they've lost maybe the dearest person in their life in a tragedy. Uh, Maybe you've even asked some of the same questions. Where was God at this time? Remember, it was Job who wrestled with things like these. In a single day, he lost all of his children, as well as his servants, his animals, his health, and the good favor of his wife. A very difficult couple of chapters to read. And we read in Job 13, verse 15, Job says, Though he slay me, yet... I will hope in him. There was an article I came across when I was doing some research for this message from the New York Times. Does that help you at least start with what I want? It was an opinion from a columnist. I'm not going to read his name off. It was um, about 13 years ago that he wrote this column called Where Was God? There's right on the heels of a tragedy, and I'm, he doesn't say what it is, but I think it was on the heels of one of the tsunamis or one of those events that happened. And this is how he writes, and, and I, I don't just generally read, you know, I, I tend to just go into God's Word. But I wanted to read this to you because this is 
very well said from the world's perspective. And it shows you also what they do with the information they have that we believe and how they could just turn it just a pinch this way or a pinch that way and it comes out entirely different. Now, I just, I'm going to comment as I go through this a little bit, but this is how he starts. In the aftermath, aftermath of a cataclysm, uh, with pictures of parents sobbing over dead infants driven into human consciousness around the globe, faith-shaking questions arise. Where was God? Why does a good and all-powerful deity permit such evil and grief to fall on so many thousands of innocents? Why did these people, what did these people do to deserve such suffering? After a similar natural disaster wiped out tens of thousands of lives in Lisbon in the 18th century, the philosopher Voltaire wrote a piece called Candidid, I think is how you'd say Candidid, savagely satirizing optimists who still found comfort in hope in God. After last month's Indian Ocean tsunami, the same anguishing questions is in the minds of millions of religious believers. Turn to the book of Job, he says, in the Hebrew Bible. It was written some 2,500 years ago during what must have been a crisis of faith. The covenant with Abraham, worship of one God, and his people would be protected, didn't seem to be working. Stop right there. Do you see a problem already? Abraham and Job. Job was probably the first book written in the Old Testament. Job did live during the time of Abraham. Job was not a descendant of Abraham. Job did not live under the Abrahamic covenant. Job did not question whether or not the Abrahamic covenant worked. It had nothing to do with Job's story. But notice how quickly that just popped in. Well, something must be wrong. I mean, God would protect his people, right? Then he goes on to say, The good die young, and the wicked prospered. Where was the promised justice? The poet priest who wrote this book, Job, began with a dialogue between God and the Satan, then a kind of prosecuting angel. When God pointed to my servant Job as most upright and devout, the Satan, interesting how he keeps calling him that, the Satan suggested Job worship God only because he had been given power and riches. On a bet that Job would stay faithful, God let the angel take the good man's possessions, kill his children, and afflict him with lonesome boils. On a bet. I thought, all right. You liking this so far? The first point the book of Job made was that suffering is not evidence of sin. When Job's friends said that he must have done something awful to deserve such misery, the reader knows that is false. I can go with what he just said. Job's suffering was a test of his faith. You would agree with that too. Even as he grew angry with God for being unjust, See how quickly that slipped in? Wishing he could sue him in a court of law. He never abandoned his belief. And did this righteous Gentile get furious? 
I'm not going to read the next sentence. It's not pretty. Forget the so-called patience of Job. That legend is blown away by the shockingly irreverent biblical narrative. Job's famous expression of meek acceptance in the 1611 King James Version, though he slay me, yet will I trust him, was a blatant misreading by nervous translators. Modern scholarship offers a much different translation. He may slay me, I will not quaver. You know what? I looked at the Hebrew and he's wrong. He wanted it to sound different. But the Hebrew reads just like your version read this morning. Right? The point of Job's gutsy defiance of God's injustice, right there in the Bible, is that it is not blasphemous to challenge the highest authority when it inflicts a moral wrong. Can you feel this going somewhere? This is not good, is it? Indeed, Job demands that his unseen adversaries show up at a trial with a written indictment gets an unexpected reaction. In the thunderous theophany, God appears before the startled man with the longest and most beautifully uh, poetic speech attributed directly to him in Scripture. Frankly, God's voice out of a whirlwind carries a message not at all satisfying to those wondering about moral mismanagement. Virginia Woolf wrote in her journal, I read in the book of Job last night, I don't think God came out well in it. The powerful voice demands of a puny man, where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Summoning the image of a mythic sea monster symbolizing chaos, God said, can thou draw out Leviathan with a hook? Now, he just misrepresented something there too, by the way. Um, the poet priest points, I think, is that God is occupied, bringing light to darkness, imposing physical order on chaos, and leaves his human creatures free to work out moral justices on their own. In other words, God's too busy with this stuff. He's just too busy in the universe to concern himself with man. Job's moral outrage caused God to appear, thereby demonstrating that the sufferer who believes he is never alone, Job abruptly stops complaining. And in a prosaic happy ending that strikes me as tacked on by other sages to get the troublesome book accepted in the human canon, he is rewarded. Now, here's his lessons. He has three lessons. Victims of this cataclysm in no way deserve a fate inflicted by the leviathanical forces of nature. Number two, questioning God's inscrutable ways has, a, has an exemplar in the Bible and needs not undermine faith. And number three, human, humanity's obligation to ameliorate injustice on earth is being expressed in a surge of generosity that refutes Voltaire's cynicism. You say, what is all that? That's a man who doesn't understand God. He does not understand what happens in a world like ours. He doesn't know where to go with his answer, and so he's blamed God for it, hasn't he? It's God's fault. And God's so busy with the universe, he really doesn't have time for us either. And the only way they could come to such conclusions is to continually twist 
the words of scripture and to make it look like God is more on the other side than on your side. How does that mesh with Romans 8? I've been telling you and telling you and telling you from verse after verse after verse things like this. If God is for us, who is against us? Verse 31. And now we get down to verse 35. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Who? That's a very good way to start the question. Indefinite pronoun. Greek language. Masculine or feminine. It's not neuter. There's neuter, it would be what? It's who. That intrigues me. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Our world would very much like that job. It would very much like for us to think like they think. To abandon this whole thing about God anyway, and His love that we talk about here, that we are sure of, that we live in light of, they would prefer that we abandon it altogether. Here's the thing, and I'll just say it off to the side, and it's not political. If we have asked Him to stay out of our schools, why do we have trouble in our schools? If we told Him to leave our government alone, why do we have trouble in our government? If we told them, don't touch our society, why do we have trouble in our society? And where do we get the right to say, where were you when these tragedies hit our schools, our governments, and our society? How can we stand here and legitimately argue their case and say they're right? They've excluded God from the picture, and then they blame Him when He's not there. That's my side note. All right? I want to talk to you, though, as a believer, because we have to have an answer. And I think the answer is right here in the passage in front of us. Verse 31, I bring it back up. Is God for you or isn't he? The verse says, if, but it's not if, it's since. Since God is for you, who is against you? That's what it says. And it says in verse 32, He who did not spare his own son. Now, didn't he deliver him over for you? Absolutely. How will he not also with him freely give us all things? And verse 33, Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justified you. I went a little further and made it personal, didn't I? God is the one who justifies. And also, in verse 34, when it comes to condemning, it's Christ Jesus, he who died, yes, rather who was raised, who's at the right hand of God, who intercedes for us. Do you need more evidence that God's for you? It's all over the page. It says it over and over and over and over again. And I purposely presented that to you again, because this perspective that we're about to look at, when I preached 33 and 34, I intentionally talked about sin, didn't I? I talked about sin and its consequences. Because that's what justification touches on, doesn't it? That's what the crucifixion was all about, wasn't it? Crucifixion was not to, to help us get better climate. Right? There are some people who have really weird ideas what that was all about. Paul wrote about justification. He wrote about the sacrifice of Christ on our behalf. I think that deals with sin. These topics we're looking at here are the answers 
to our greatest need ever. Sin. Because Jesus didn't die on a cross, so I wouldn't wreck my car. Jesus didn't die on a cross so I would be immune from the flu. The cross is not the cure for cancer, folks. It doesn't make your bank statement balanced. Jesus is not a good luck charm. Jesus died and rose again to solve my greatest need, and yours too. Because the devastating penalty of sin and the prospects of eternal separation from him, I could do nothing about. But he could. And he did. And I praise the Lord for that. That's what the passage tells us, right? It's rather straightforward. Rather clear. So I'm not talking today about some future remedy that I hope will, will, will find it or help me pass by on the other side or whatever. I have forgiveness now. I have it now. I have salvation now. There is no condemnation now to those who are in Christ Jesus. I underscore all those things. Because the Lord, when it comes to trying to figure out how this world works and things like that, He didn't turn to me and say, now you figure it out. I'm too busy. If He would meet the greatest need that I would ever have, why should I doubt that He could meet the needs of this day? The need of this hour? Regardless of what that need might be. Why should I doubt His goodness toward me? Why should I doubt his love toward me? Why should I doubt that he's present with me? That he's powerful enough? Yes, he could have stopped it, but he didn't. Does that mean there's something wrong with him? Or does that mean more that my brain is just not big enough to get it? Here's the issue. We take the issue of sin as the greatest need of mankind. Now, is there anything greater than that that you know of? That's the biggest need man is ever going to face. And let's talk about what the world calls tragedy. Tragedy. Look at verse 35. You see the list? Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword. Is that a tragedy? Any one of those tragedies? I want to give you a perspective. You ready for it? It's very important that you see this. The tragedy you're looking at in those words is not that which befalls this world. It is what the world inflicts on the believer. Now look at it again. Who is the one who brings tribulation to the believer? Who is the one who brings distress to the believer? Who is the one who persecutes the believer? Who is the one who gives us famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Who is that one? Is it not the world? Do they look at these verses as tragedies? No. You know why? Because they're aimed at believers. 
who instigated them? The very world who stands up and says, where's God when we have trouble? Are the ones inflicting that trouble on God's children. I wanted you to see a perspective like that, and I'm going to show you why it's the way it is. Verse 35 is written to the one who is loved by God and is also secured in his love. That's the believer. This passage, who will separate us? Us in the passage, he's talking to believers, right? This is about the believer and his relationship with God. And the question is, who will separate us from the love of God and the love of Christ? And then he starts a list of the things that are inflicted upon the believer. We had those bringing charges against God's elect. Verse 33. We had those who were condemning God's people in verse 34. Now, you heard the voices as we went through that passage. The world is certainly a part of that scheme. We know Satan could do that. We know even our own sinful hearts, our own sinful consciences can cry out against us too. But God in His ultimate display of love gave His Son to meet our need. That's what we've read. There is nothing, nothing more solidifying in my heart than the fact that God removed that barrier between me and Him. And He solved my sin problem forever. That solidifies it for me. And I can rest in that. And I can take that into a 24-hour day, folks. Does God concern Himself with every 24 hours of my life? When's the last time we read Psalm 139? The first 18 verses. If you're not prepared for it, it will stun you. You know why? He knows what you're thinking. Really? He knows what you say before it comes out of your mouth. He knows when you rise up. He knows when you sit down. He knows your thoughts from afar. All these verses are just there. They're just like, oh, oh, oh. You know, it's amazing. He must have a bug on me. How do we know all this? He knows all this because it goes to the end of that section, 18 verses, and he says that his thoughts of me are constant. He is intimately acquainted with all my ways. He thinks of me. That could blow your mind, folks, just to think he loves you that much. And it's recorded in 18 verses today. I'm not going to read through that whole passage, but the simple answer is, yes, God is concerned with every second of your day, whether you're awake or you're asleep. Now, that's incredible, knowing how many of his children he keeps an eye on. (laughs) He is God, after all, isn't he? So in Romans 8, when it says, Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Is a tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, sword, peril? Who? Who's ever going to separate you from Him? Who's ever going to divide you from Him? Who's ever going to put a space between you and Him? 
that's the big word here. It's the idea uh, of uh, uh, making you independent, cut you off, send you out on your own, cut the rope and let your boat just drift. A.T. Robertson, the Greek scholar, said, Can anyone put a distance between Christ's love and us? Can anyone leave Christ to cease loving us? Well, if it were a thing that separates us from his love, then we might say, well, that would have been my sin. I mean, that's the strongest thing I could think of that might be the biggest problem in my relationship with him. But he's already answered that one. And your sin is not greater than his love. Rest in that. I'm not trying to say do what you want. You understand. The question is who? Every translation I looked up on my computer, just in case I covered everybody in this room, I don't know if you've got one from Zimbabwe or something like that. You might have a different word. But I don't have that one. Every single translation said who, 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 who. If you have something different, tell me later. All right? I want to know which one didn't put who in there. It says, who will separate you from the love of Christ? Who is it? You know, for the longest time, I'll be honest with you, as, as a teenager going into Bible college, I believed there was an answer to who, and I thought it was me. I said, well, maybe they can't do it, maybe they can't do it, maybe they, I can separate myself from the love of Christ. I don't know why I was so cocky with that kind of an answer. I thought maybe that was true, that I could do it. You know, my own free will, all this stuff. I don't like my will, by the way. If you want it, you can have it. Mine has never done me any good. But I thought back then, I could do whatever I want. I could separate myself from the love of Christ. And I'll give you a preview, because down into verse number 38, I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing. I stopped out there and said, I'm a created thing. And guess what? Will ever be able to separate me from the love of God. I couldn't do it. And it stopped me in my tracks. This question of who then, Sin tries, and it's failed to put that wedge between God and I. Accusers have tried to condemn, but there's no place for that to stand before his throne. We saw that. Jesus is there to intercede, right? He's there at the Father's right hand. Remember Balaam in the Old Testament? What's he known for? A donkey that talks. You guys ever get a donkey in your herd or up there, you know, and it's talking, get rid of it. It doesn't lead to anything good, right? But Balaam had this donkey, and you know it talked. But that wasn't what Balaam was really all about. That was part of the story. He was hired by the Moabite king to come and curse the Israelites. And he tried. Every time he tried, God took over his mouth and he declared a blessing. So Balaam didn't want to go home unpaid. And so, he recommended to the king of Moab another idea. He said, basically, if we cannot condemn them, if we cannot destroy them, God can. Just get them to sin, and God will take care of the rest. 
that was his advice, and you know what? They tried it. And there was a terrible result from that story. If you want to know the rest of it, come on Sunday nights. We're in the book of Numbers. All right, I won't tell you the rest. But the world uses this technique, by the way, against believers today still. We have an advocate with the Father. The Lord Jesus Christ, who sits at the right hand of our Father, who intercedes for us. And they say, well, if we cannot separate God from them, we will do our best to separate them from God. Plan B, in this very twisted mentality of theirs, is if we persecute them, they will deny him. You see, if God sees us suffering, and he sees how puny we are, he might forsake us. But more times than not, when it hurts, we give in. That's the world's perspective on this whole thing. If we suffer, we're going to turn against him. So they look for a list of tragedies. Things they can inflict or impose on a believer to get them to quit. To deny that God cares. To walk around in this world like they walk in miserable existence, wondering if anybody cares at all. The device the world uses against the believer is nothing new. This is what Jesus said. John 15, just before he was crucified, these are his words. Starts in verse 18, I'm going to read through verse 25. If the world hates you, you will know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of this world, because of this, the world hates you. Remember the words that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they would have kept yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know the one who sent me. They do not know him. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have sinned. But now they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would not have sinned. But now they have both seen and hated me and my father as well. But this they have done to fulfill the word that was written in their law. They hated me without a cause. Then he says in John 16, in verse number 1 through 3, These things I have spoken to you so that you may be kept from stumbling. They will make you outcast from the synagogue. But an hour is coming when everyone who kills you, they will think that he's offering service to God. These things they do because they had not known the Father or me. Then he says in verse 4, John 16, 4, But these things I have spoken to you so that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told you of them. These things I did not say to you at the beginning because I was with you. Then in verse 27, 16, 27, For the Father himself loves you. Right in the midst of all these words. The Father himself loves you. And then I go on to verse 33, 1633. These things I've spoken to you so that you may have peace. In this world you will have tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world. Jesus did not leave us without understanding. 
of this world, or what it does, or how it speaks, even about our God. God did not keep quiet about your future. If God had not told us this, we could have wondered, God, why didn't you let us know? You cannot say that against him, can you? He told us so. Why did he say that? Because he loves you. And he doesn't want you to be caught unaware. Even Peter wrote out of that in his epistle. He says, why do you people act like this is a new thing? I mean, it's quite an interesting question to ask somebody who's suffering like they were. Why is that so new to you? It's in God's Word. Now, by this point, you're probably, on one side, not feeling too good. Because you think, well, I'm living in a world like this. There's no peace in that kind of world. There's no... That's the point. This world is not saving you, folks. Jesus Christ did. There's a difference between the two. What Paul added in Romans 8, in verse 36, is this phrase, just as it is written. He goes back to Psalm 44. So it's been around a long time. For your sakes, we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. That's what the world does to the believer. God's people do know persecution. God's people do know what it is to be rejected by this world. God's people do know those statements that they trap us with or set before us and think that we don't have an answer for. Where was God at this time? Their point is not because they want to find God. They want to show that your faith is useless and worthless. And they don't understand why you stay in that, why you believe that, why you think there is a God at all who loves you. They want you to walk away from it, too. You see, that's the point of their question. They want you to be with them. They don't want to be with you. Let me, let me sum up what I thought just in the words I've shared with you this morning. Can a believer know persecution by this world? Yes. Can the world try hard to put a separation between us and God? Yes, it can. Many times it tries just to get us to deny him. Is there anything abnormal for the world to hate the believer? No, it's not abnormal at all, if you want to look at it that way. It is a sign. Since the world hates the believer and persecutes him, is that supposed to mean that God quit loving us? Who is able to separate us from the love of Christ? Now you've got the question, and you also know the answer. You know who is. The who is this world. Among other things, it's this world. It's the people who want to misrepresent God to you. They want to suggest that he's absent. They want to suggest that he doesn't care. They want to suggest that he's ignorant of your life. They want to suggest he's powerless to meet your need. They want to suggest that you have a pretty poor God. And he doesn't come out very good in the end. That's what they want you to believe. Now, you can choose to hear, heed their voice. 
and you're going to sit there and scratch your head and wonder about your day and be miserable all the way through it and ask the same questions they ask and wonder at all if God cares for you. Or you can trust God's word. And it says so clearly in verse number 37, we're coming out next week, in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. That's the answer. That's the answer. Heavenly Father, we need this today. We live in such a cynical world. We live in such a sinful, evil world. And we do see the results of sin all around us. We see what it looks like when it's allowed to have its way. When it falls down upon our schools and our government and our society. We see the pain of it. Lord, day after day after Yes, we do see that this is a wicked world. This world will pass away. But he who does the will of God abides forever. Your word says such things over and over and over again. It calls on us to just trust and walk with our God. In this passage we've studied, it says over and over and over again that you love us. I pray that that's what we believe. And we live every moment in light of that statement. Regardless of what this world would want us to think, may we think like you. Because you've written this out for us. May we trust your word. Thank you, Father, for your love for us. Thank you so much for the way you love us. We give you the praise in Jesus' name. Amen.